Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. If you don't have your Bible, uh, you can grab one of the hardback black ones that is near you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we would encourage you to to grab one of those Bibles and take it home and make it your own. Uh, Consider it a gift from the church. If you don't know where Matthew chapter 7 is, uh, look in the index and, and you'll be able to find it quickly. Uh, the chapters are the really large numbers, and the verses are the really small numbers. So we are in chapter 7, starting in verse 13. I want to pray for us as you're turning there. So if you're already there, you can go ahead and bow your head with me. If you're getting there, uh, just bow your head when you, when you catch up. Father, we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to, to worship, to open up your word, to study it, to hear it proclaimed. Father, we, we pray that we would be able to, to set aside weekly agendas, uh, Mother's Day parties, um, whatever it is that, that our heads and hearts may go to right now. Father, we, we pray that we will be able to, to block them out and focus solely on you. Father, we, we pray that as we see the commands of Jesus and as we see the teachings of Jesus, as we finish the Sermon on the Mount, that we would, we would be struck, not necessarily by the, the commands, though they're there, but by the man who gave them. Father, help us to read and think with the death and resurrection of Jesus sitting just ahead of what we're looking at today. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. We ask, Father, for you to speak because your servants are listening. Do this for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the Hatch Valley. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The New Testament scholar R.T. French summed up the Sermon on the Mount with these words. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but to be obeyed. I think we tend too often to look at the words of Scripture as something that is well put together, as something that can be convicting, but like James tells us in his letter, all too often we read the word, but we don't do the word. And so we are like someone who looks in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what they look like. Friends, we have have spent quite a bit of time walking through and wrestling with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to finish it today, which seems like an accomplishment, right? This is the the greatest sermon that was ever preached, and and we've, we've walked through it, and we've struggled with what Jesus has called us to do as citizens of his kingdom and today we, we wrap the bow on the sermon, and Jesus calls us ultimately to a new way of life. And I know what many of you are thinking, he's already done this, right? I mean, we've, we've been told to love our enemies, to fight against lust and anger, to combat anxiety, to think rightly about money. But what Jesus is going to lay for us here is that there are ultimately 
two ways to live. This is something that, that has really been present in Scripture since, I would argue, the beginning. You could go back to Cain and Abel. One sacrificed rightly and one sacrificed wrongly. But often through the narratives in the Psalms and the Proverbs and even into the New Testament, the Bible tells us that there are two ways to live. And these ways can be summed up thusly. You can either live a life of unbelief or you can live a life of belief. And what Jesus is calling us to, really what, what I'm going to, to posit is our, our big idea, is that we obey who we believe, and therefore we must trust Jesus. We obey who we believe, trust Jesus. So let's jump into the text, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. And here's the first picture of the two ways to live that Jesus gives us. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, in Jesus' time, every city, great and small, protected itself and built its status upon the wall that surrounded it. And so every city had walls and the way you entered into them or exited them were gates. Gates were a common theme among the people of Jesus' time. And Jesus tells us that there is a wrong gate and a right gate in our lives. The wrong gate is wide and easy. Many walk through it. They seek to breeze through life. But this gate, the wrong one, leads to destruction. Friends, it is... Let's come back to that thought. Okay. The right gate is narrow and hard. Not many people walk through it because it is difficult. It contains valleys and mountains, rivers and creeks to cross, crags and ravines to navigate. But this right gate, the one that is narrow and hard, it leads to life. And let us not miss this important, this important matter. In the Gospel of John, Jesus teaches that he is the gate for the sheep. That he is the gate that believers enter through. And so this talk of wrong gate and right gate, I would argue the wrong gate is the gate of the world open to all to do whatever your heart desires. If you want to chase religion, chase religion. If you want to chase money, chase money. If you want to chase sex or fame or whatever, do as you please. The right gate is Jesus 
which calls us to repentance of our sins and trusting in his life, his death, and his resurrection, which makes him our Lord and it makes us his subjects. I think the easiest way to understand this gate teaching that Jesus is giving us is imagine that life and culture are a river. And you can jump into the river and you can float and you're going to go wherever the world takes you. Or you can jump into the river and you can swim. Swim not by your own strength, but by the strength that the Holy Spirit gives you. And you can fight against the current and fight against the the things that try to draw you away from following Jesus. So the question is, friends, are you going through the wide, easy gate? Are you just floating in culture Or are you going through the right gate, the narrow and hard one, where you are swimming against the tides of the world around you? Jesus continues in verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus presents us with two teachers. I don't think I have to explain the illustration here very much. We do live in a farming community. You know what a healthy pecan tree does, and you know what an unhealthy pecan tree does. You know what a healthy batch of onions do and what an unhealthy batch of onions do. Jesus presents before us a wrong teacher and a right teacher. The wrong teacher is a false prophet, A wrong teacher is going to say, I know God's word says this, but I tell you this. And he wants to pull you away from the truths of scripture. This wrong teacher is going to be dressed like a sheep, but is actually going to be, in Jesus' terms, a ravenous wolf looking to devour the weak. This false teacher bears diseased fruit. What comes from this person is not health. What comes from this person is not salvation, but brokenness. And eventually, for the teacher and those that follow, judgment. Jesus gives us a brief glimpse of the right teacher. He doesn't give us a a deep illustration of this teacher because ultimately, I would posit that the best and greatest teacher is Jesus himself. Peter uses in his first letter at the end of it in chapter 5, he talks about how we have one senior pastor, we have one great shepherd, and then those that teach in the church faithfully are the under-shepherds doing what he has called them to do. That's why I tell you that I would prefer, you know, I mean, we use the term pastor because that's, that's the title we're used to, right? Um, but pastor carries with it the idea of a shepherd, 
Okay, the, the word that we translate to pastor from the Greek is, is actually the word for shepherd. And so I tell y'all all the time, I'd rather be thought of as a faithful sheepdog, right? Listening to my master and doing what he calls me to do. But here's the reality, friends. The good fruit, the gospel-centeredness, the life that leads to a reward, I can't do that on my own. You realize that when I teach and lead and strategize from selfishness, I'm going to bear bad, diseased fruit. But when I teach and lead and strategize from the Holy Spirit, from the truth of the Bible, that's where the good fruit comes. And so the difference between a false prophet And a faithful teacher is who they're relying on. I would say here that trusting in Jesus means looking for faithful teachers, right? But it means ultimately looking for the most faithful teacher, and that's Jesus. True, those who truly love the people of God and the word of God will point back to Jesus again and again. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus will be at the center of everything that they teach. Because it is Jesus and the gospel that produces good fruit. I think of a friend of mine named Jeremy. He's a, a fellow preacher. He, he lives in Tennessee. He talks about how when he was a young kid, his mom and his stepdad planted an apple tree, and they waited a few years for it to produce fruit. And so the first year that it produced fruit, he was so excited, and the apples looked so delicious. They were shiny and, and full of color. And so the time came to start harvesting the apples, and he picked one, and it looked beautiful, and he bit into it, and it was absolutely rotten, full of worms. They had made some mistakes in terms of handling pests, and so the apple har- their first apple harvest wasn't a good one. But sometimes false teachers come to us looking beautiful and delicious. It's not just what they look like. It's, it's what's at the core That's where we'll see the good and true fruit. Move to verse 21. Jesus continues, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here Jesus shows us two separate lives. He tells us that the wrong life claims Jesus as Lord, does religious things, but did not do the will of the Father. And because of this, he, he or she will be separated from Jesus for eternity. Now this is scary I mean, can we be honest? Jesus actually builds on this teaching in Matthew 25, where he goes into detail about part of what the Father's will is to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to visit those who are in prison. 
But I would say that that's, that's an incomplete uh, collection of what Jesus would define as someone who does the will of the Father. The will of the Father is, yes, to do good things, to prophesy in his name, to do miraculous works and to do the small things of, of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. But it, it goes further than that. What did we read to start the service today in John chapter 6? The will of my Father is that you would believe in him who he sent. Friends, I would say that what, what Jesus is most concerned about here is to remind us that it's not just the works that have to be there, there's the faith that has to be there. Because the right life claims Jesus as Lord, does the will of the Father, and then enters into the rest that Jesus gives us. And don't miss the fact that not only is Jesus the gate, and not only is he the good teacher, but he is also the one who lived the right life. He is the one who prophesied, cast out demons, did mighty works, clothed the naked, fed the poor, healed the sick, and he did it all trusting in and pointing back to God. And so we see that trusting in Jesus means both faith and works. Friends, a faith that has no works is dead. And a works that has no faith is legalism. Because I think we suffer more, or not suffer, but I think we struggle more with the faith without works than the works without faith. I want to use one of my favorite illustrations. You've heard this one before, most likely, and I apologize, but I think it, I think it does the job. If you and I were on an airplane and it was going down and there were two parachutes and we grabbed them and I talked to you about how much I loved the parachute and trusted the parachute and I was, I was, I was going to trust the parachute until I died and yet all I did was hold on to it and do nothing with it, do I really trust the parachute? But you, on the other hand, because you know the airplane is going down, you don't talk about your trust in the parachute. You put it on, you jump out, you pull the cord, the parachute opens, and you're saved. Friends, faith without works is dead. If you trust Jesus, you will obey Jesus. If you have faith in Christ, you will follow his commands. In fact, Jesus says twice in the, in the Gospel of John, and John says it multiple times in his first letter, if you love Jesus, you will obey his commands. And so, friends, I want to implore you that the only way that you can be saved from your deserved judgment and my deserved judgment of death and hell is by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alone. That's the only way that you are saved. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that you are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one will boast. But then at the end of that paragraph, he says, and yet you have been saved to walk in the good works that the Father has established beforehand. 
The great reformer Martin Luther says, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. This is why Jesus calls us to trust him and to do good works. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So I used to, when I was a kid and I would hear this story, I would imagine somebody building, like two men building houses on the beach, right? And one finds some rock and lays the foundation in it, and the other one just builds his house right in the middle of the sand, And of course, that's because I had a limited knowledge of geography. And it wasn't until I moved to New Mexico that I perfectly understood this illustration. You see, Israel, back then and even into today, has serious issues with flash floods. It is a mountainous desert area that oftentimes will get heavy storms in the mountains And the water will rush down and destroy anything that's in its path. Sound familiar? And so what happened during Jesus' day and what still continues to happen in Israel, and we know of, of stories like this in New Mexico too, that when a flash flood comes and it it hits the mountains and the water rushes down, if the house is not built on a solid foundation, it's wiped away with the storm. And so Jesus tells us that there are two ways to build our house of faith and to build our lives of faith. The wrong way is on shifting sand with no foundation that is easily swept away. And yet the right way is on the rock with a solid foundation that stands no matter what comes up against it. Friends, Jesus is the rock that he is calling us to build our foundation upon. Trusting in Jesus means he is the foundation. So this week, I googled, what is it like to build a house on rock? And like the first 50 entries that showed up, right? So that means I had to go multiple pages into the search, was how difficult it is to build a foundation on rock. The work that you have to do within the rock to make sure that the foundation is straight and stands up It's hard. Jesus is calling us to put our foundation in him. And he's calling us to hard work. But again, coming back to our big idea, we obey who we believe. And so our hearts and our minds and our lives need to trust Jesus. I don't want us to miss verses 28 and 29. The crowds were astonished because Jesus and his teaching were not like the normal teachers. We know 
the answer for verses 28 and 29 is because he is the God-man, the Messiah, the one who the people of Israel have been waiting for. So how do we apply this? How, how do we take this, this idea of two ways to live and apply it to our lives? The first thing, and, and this, is, this is for individuals, this is for you, um, is to do the work of foundation building. Do the work of foundation building. Build your foundation into the rock of Jesus. And the way you do this is by studying your Bible, by spending time with God in prayer, by coming to church committed, not just to the, 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 the different extensions that we need commitment to, not just committed to um, watching babies in nursery, not just committed to teaching preschool or teaching children's church. We need you committed to sitting here and soaking in God's word together as a community. What is going to change you is not one or two spectacular sermons that you, know, you remember every point from and you take and, and it just completely changes your life. God may do that, but that's not the idea of preaching sermons. Can I be honest with you? Most of my sermons are singles and doubles and not home runs. I am fully aware of that and I am fully comfortable in that because my job as your shepherd is not to give you one great meal, but to take you to your food every time we're together. And so friends, what will help you build your foundation on Christ is not hearing spectacular sermons every once in a while but being fed by the word again and again and again. But it's not just enough to, to do your Bible time and your prayer and come to Sunday mornings. You need a small group of believers to walk through life together with. One of my hopes and one of my aims for 2017 and on for this church is to build a lasting discipleship culture that gets people into small groups to grow together. I don't hear this as a complaint, okay? The rhythm of a farming community is difficult in doing this. And so we're going to try to get way outside of the box and figure out some stuff that is going to help you connect with fellow believers to grow in your faith so that you have this foundation to follow Jesus. The second way to apply this is, is, is at home. Talk today when you go out to eat or when you go to your Mother's Day luncheon. Talk today and throughout the week with your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors about this idea of two ways to live. That you can either live in unbelief or you can, believe, or you can live with belief. What, what is your household going to do with that? Third way to apply this in the church, let's add to the foundation, don't take away. Add to the foundation, don't take away. What I mean by that is this. We need to make sure that with a laser-like precision, everything we do in this church 
points to Jesus and doesn't point away from him. Everything. And I don't, I don't know if this means, you know, adding scripture to the nursery schedules. I, I don't know if this means, you know, painting the gospel in the bathrooms. I, we can figure that out together. But everything that we do should point to Jesus. If it points away from him, then we are encouraging people to build their lives on the shifting sands of culture that will suck them away. We, notice where I'm pointing. If you're listening to this on podcast, I'm pointing to myself, okay? Just for those of you out there. We need to do everything in our ability to make sure that everything this church does points back to the gospel, tells people, plant your life in Jesus. He is the good and true foundation. Everything else will fail you. Fourth and final thing, in the community, don't lose your foundation. Don't come to church and build a foundation. Don't go home with your family and build a foundation. Don't in your individual walk with Jesus, your Bible reading, your prayer time, your your time and fellowship with the church, don't let all of those things build this foundation of Jesus and then you go to work and it's just gone. You go to the Little League field and it's just gone. Do everything in your ability to stay planted in Christ and in the gospel in everything that you do. Because here's the thing, friends. What's going to change the Hatch Valley is not the preacher or the singing or the worship services. What's going to change the Hatch Valley is faithful people who live in the Hatch Valley, who love the Hatch Valley, who love Jesus, and they want to see Hatch and Jesus meet. That's what's going to change the valley. That's what's going to heal homes that are broken. That is what's going to keep young children away from things that will destroy them. It's helping them see the good and glorious news of Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners like me you and them. So, how do we keep our foundation? Friends, be constant in prayer. In your five-minute drive or 15-minute drive, use it more for prayer and connection with your Father than for listening to whatever it is that you listen to. Right? Even if it's a podcast of sermons or... Uh, or K-Love, right? Spend more time in prayer. Preach the gospel to yourself throughout the day. When you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, remind yourself that you are a broken sinner who deserves nothing but death and hell. But because of God's great love for you, he sent Jesus to live, die, and come back to life to save you. And he did it for your neighbor too. So preach that to yourself in the mirror in the morning. Preach it to yourself in the the rear view mirror in your car in the afternoon and preach it to yourself again as you're lying in bed. In fact, preach it to to yourself and your honey, right? That'll be a, a good way to end the night together. Well, 
don't be mad at your spouse and be like, you deserve nothing but death and hell. Good night. Like, that's, that's not the gospel, okay? All right. The gospel, the, there is bad news of death and hell, but there's good news of Jesus, right? So, so just be careful with that, but you know what I'm saying. Remind yourself of, of what, um, what, what many of the, the, the teaching materials of our faith have told us throughout the centuries, that you are not your own, you belong to God. You are not your own. You belong to God. Let me, let me finish with this. When Paul is trying to encourage the church in Corinth to fight against sin, and especially the sin of lust, and maybe that's true for you, maybe you're, you're fighting with that, maybe you're not, okay? But Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, remember this, your body does not belong to you. You were bought with a price. Friends, you do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. And that price that was paid was Jesus. You weren't a buy one, get one free deal, okay? Jesus bled all of his blood and died all of his death for you. So as you're seeking to remain in that foundation of Christ, as you're being constant in prayer and preaching the gospel to yourself, remind yourself that you are not your own. You belong to God. Let me, very quickly, I want to I give a, a quick shout out. And I'll put something on, on Facebook about this so you can find it. But, but on your phone... If you have a smartphone, if you have a flip phone, this doesn't work, but I can get you a book and help you out. But, but on, your, on your smartphone, there's this little thing. It's called the New City Catechism, right? And I know we are a Baptist church in a largely Catholic town, so you're going to hear the word catechism and you're going to get nervous, but don't, okay? The term catechism simply means to teach by questions, right? So a catechism is ask a question and there's an answer, all right. So the New City Catechism was put together by, by some really a broad range of people, some Presbyterians, some Baptists, some non-denominational folks. But it is, it is meant to take a lot of the catechisms throughout Christian history and boil them down to a simple way to teach the faith to people that live in the 21st century. So that's you and me. Okay, and so the New City Catechism, you can download it, and it's got all of the questions and all of the answers, and there's 52 of them. And that is set up so perfectly. Why? Because there's 52 weeks in a year. So you can work on one question a week. And what our family has done, and we, we've just started this, is we are trying to every morning go over the question and the answer. And so the first question, and this is, this is why this came to mind. The first question is, what is our one hope in life and death? And the answer is, we are not our own, but we belong to God. Right? And so I've been asking the girls this question, um, you know, what's, what's our one hope in life and death? And they've got the answer down. Judd is still yelling Jesus because he thinks that's the right answer, right? If I asked him, I mean, with our discipleship with him right now, if I asked him what two plus two was, he would probably say Jesus because he knows that mommy and daddy get happy when he says Jesus. Um, so, you know, but, but it's, 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 it's just a neat and easy little thing that you can talk about over your breakfast table for a week to memorize together. And after, after 52 weeks, it, 
your kids are going to know, I'm not my own. I belong to God. And you're going to know, I am not my own. I belong to God. And friends, that is the best thing to remember. Let's pray.